0: Welcome to Sastery in the Making, the podcast that features the people who made the software world what it is today and the leaders who are shaping the future of technology. Here's your host, Matt Wallach.
1: Okay, I have questions. Have you ever wondered what VCs are thinking when talking to you or or what do you do? How do you approach a venture capitalist? How do you seek that investment and what are they looking for? Well, you're in the right spot. This is Sastry in the Making. I am your host, Matt Wallach, and I am thrilled to be joined by Preston Tucker. Preston, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Matt. How are you?
1: Doing absolutely great myself. Preston is the man when it comes to investing, especially in the SaaS space. He's the founder of PMT Ventures. It's a micro private equity firm focused on acquiring online businesses, really predominantly in the SaaS space. He's also formerly a senior manager at Amazon, where he did a lot of great things, including leading a global team of industrial engineers. And program managers, so he really understands the SaaS world. He's been uh, doing this for a while, and I am so excited to have him on. So, Preston, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So, tell me what's going on at PMT Ventures and what's coming up.
0: Yeah, I uh, so I, I launched my firm spring of, of 2019, uh, and you know I, I spent about seven years at Amazon, kind of like you had covered. Really got intrigued with, honestly, like lifestyle design, ready to, to work for myself and, and own my own time and started making some investments last year and then moved on to this full time uh, earlier this year, just kind of continuing to build on, on the stuff that I did last year. And so I, I closed a couple of deals this year, mostly in the e-com space most recent one was was last month. And then we've got a deal now uh, under due diligence in, in the SaaS space, uh, which I wish I could talk about, but I can't at the moment. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll be able to talk a little higher level, I think, and then get some good takeaways for, for the audience today.
1: Perfect. That sounds good. I, I'm really intrigued because I love SaaS myself, been in it for 15 years or so. But what led you to want to acquire these SaaS businesses?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a, a combination of things. Like one, I think, Yeah, you've probably even seen people tweet it now, but like running a SaaS business is kind of like the new American dream, I think, to an extent. There's this kind of romanticization of, you know, being able to scale something quick, work with a small team, live anywhere in the world and uh, take advantage, you know, kind of the geographical arbitrage of cost of living to an extent. So like that, from a lifestyle design standpoint, it's always been intriguing to me. Uh, Also, when I was at Amazon, worked in a variety of different roles. I started out kind of in logistics and operations and launching robotics warehouses across the United States, Uh, moved into a couple of global roles towards the end where I was uh, my team was responsible for scaling or putting the process together to scale robotics technologies from ideation up to, to global rollout and kind of a piece of that that I got pulled into was, was rewriting some of the operating systems uh, for those operations as well. And I, I was able to leverage a lot of my experience I had when I was in the warehouses where I, I worked pretty closely with a lot of the product and software teams for developing new tools at, at Amazon. So I was given a lot of kind of the, the alpha feedback uh, on tools and, and was pretty instrumental in being able to build a lot of those that became you know adopted company-wide. So it was really intriguing. It was exciting. And I, I think you know the, the mantra of every Excel macro out there is just another SaaS product uh, in the making was ringing true there, and so I'm I'm intrigued by you know being able to scale that now uh, outside of uh, of Amazon and finding those out in, in the world. That's
1: a great story. I really love it. I'm curious though, what types of companies are you looking for? Who's really making you pretty interested? Who's intriguing you these days?
0: Yeah, I've got a. a not a super strict criteria but like a general profile uh, that I look for so I mostly focus in the B2B space and all of these are, are are loosely held with high conviction <laughs> to an extent right <laughs> there's always unique opportunities that uh, I think are worth evaluating but the B2B space the uh, kind of the driver behind that is you know if if you're a small business or even a large enterprise and you're, you know, adopting a, a software product. There's a lot more friction to switching, frankly, to, to another product versus, a, you know, B2C kind of alternative. I look somewhat in the startup space, but, all, you know, minimum kind of two years old, really preferably five plus uh, just to have a little bit more demonstrated kind of maturity there. You know, churn is obviously a major factor. There's, there's dozens of variables out there, but to me, that's that's the main thing is just looking at stickiness from a customer perspective, Typically under seven percent, targeting closer one to three uh, on a monthly basis. Um, you know, kind of clear, proven passive customer acquisitions. Like, and I'll, we can get into it later as well. But a lot of times, something grows really fast and you don't even know why. Uh, I mean, it's a great problem to have. Yeah, but okay. from an invest, you know, from my standpoint, like I, I want to know. Uh, otherwise, I can't really properly you know, evaluate the, the risks of, of an acquisition. And then I think the other piece, and we'll get into it uh, a little bit more detail later. But just you know, low key man risk as well. You want to be able to know that the, yeah, yeah all founders are integral to, to starting a business and getting it, you know, up on the growth curve. But you know, at some point, you've got to be able to to scale that and and step away to where the, the growth and strategy is automated to an extent, right?
1: No, for sure, absolutely. I think that's really critical. I think a lot of companies and and founders don't really set themselves up well enough on that when you look at it that way they start to make everything kind of pivot around themselves. And one of my old mentors always used to say, Hey, everything in the company has got to be able to pass the bus test. Meaning if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, are we going to still be able to continue on and continue our growth and be able to even operate? And so it's awesome that you bring that up. I I am always reminded of the bus test when I hear that.
0: I use a car analogy, but same thing. <laughs> it's tough, right? Like as a founder, man, it's, this is your baby. It's the thing you built. Like you know it better than anyone in the world. Uh, and I th- I think it's difficult. And it, it's not even unique to SaaS. It's just small businesses in general when you get started. It's really tough to give up that that control, right? And you have to kind of accept to an extent that like no one is going to do it probably as well as you, or at least your your area of ownership, right? Which is which is fine. I mean, that if, if you don't take that step back and you know hire somebody who can do it at an eighty percent level, then you're not able to you know stay focused on the you know maybe the competitive advantages that you bring to the table, rather than you know doing everything at once uh, and kind of taking away maybe from the, the most efficient uh, use of your time. So yeah, it's it's not easy. It's, there's emotions in it, obviously, which are super tough sure. to work through. And so I, I, I get both sides of the coin there
1: absolutely i've been there i felt those emotions so i understand but if you really want to be able to scale if you really want to make the the company something you've got to be able to to set it up for success you got to be able to set it up for for growth and have other people be able to be a big part of that so that the company can continue to thrive
0: yeah and that's uh, it's just the challenges of leadership in general like i mean it, even if you're within you know a, a big corporation and let's say you start up a team which you know, i did a couple times and Went from being just me in the beginning and then all of a sudden I had seven, eight people reporting to me and people up through them. And you're like, oh man, I don't hundred percent like the way something's getting done. But you look at just the opportunity cost at the end of the day. Right. And you can continue to add value in, in the right place by being, being strategic with where you bring people on so you can scale.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I want to ask you, we have a lot of software founders listening to the show uh, from your perspective as an investor, how can software founders set themselves up to look very valuable, to look very attractive to an investor? What what are the types of things you and others are looking for?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, gosh, you can talk probably the rest of the episode on it, um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll give some just kind of high level things we we look for, and I, I I'll speak from my perspective, but I I think I'm I'm probably echoing a lot of my peers in, in the space as well. So I, I think you know we talked about it earlier, you know, being able to replace yourself as as much as possible. So I think you got to understand a lot of time what the investor model looks like. So, and once they you know acquire your company, so many of them and, and everyone there's there's I don't know a million ways that you could approach this, but a lot of common ones is especially in the SaaS space, someone has a team of you know three to four people. Maybe you've got a growth marketing person, you've got a couple of SDEs, uh, and they're a team, and that they're leveraged across multiple uh, acquisitions in a portfolio. So, understanding that that's may be the case, they've got to be able to step in and take over You know, very highly documented SOPs, a lot of automation from a workflow perspective. And this kind of gets into the being able to replace yourself as much as possible. So if there's unique maybe relationships uh, that the founder may have in, in that space, you've got to figure out a way to automate and, and replicate those so that whoever comes in and buys it can, can keep those kind of that, that, that unique strategy maybe you had it or competitive advantage in place. I think the answer to doing that is different for every company. It just depends on the business. The The other thing, too, and getting back to kind of the clear acquisition channels, you'd be surprised how many successful founders that, that I interview and, and talk with about acquiring that don't actually know where all the growth and, and traffic is coming from. Kind of like the default, if they don't know, is like, oh, it's word of mouth or like referral. Like... But do you have like a referral system in place, or is it just you think people are talking to each other and that's how it's growing? And I'm kind of surprised, but it's been a pretty interesting thing to, to learn. So being really clear, be able to speak to like where that that comes from, um, will put the buyer at ease because then they can take that and say, okay, I've got clear channels. Even if you got something that didn't work, like that's not necessarily a negative. That can answer a lot of the unknown for for the buyer right and they're they're trying to just build a risk profile at the end of the day so any the more questions that they can answer the more comfortable they're going to be with being able to move forward and i I think the other thing too is just from a product standpoint like you got to have a pretty clear path of like all right whether you've got a main product and it makes sense to add other products or if you've got a main product and the main thing is that you're just going to want to add more features based on user feedback having an idea of what that roadmap looks like with just some general priorities of how you would would attack them is going to make it much easier for the buyer to be able to take over right so the, the theme i'm kind of getting at here is how do you make the transition as seamless and easy as possible that transparency in the process makes it a lot, lot easier for a buyer and is going to it's going to look a lot more advantageous right i think understanding churn is probably the last piece that that's super uh, important as well knowing why people are leaving the business and it, it doesn't have to be like oh, I've interviewed every single person that's ever left my ever left our product and got an answer. Like you just got to have a general feel for you know how much of it is your product, how much of it is your competitors, and be able to understand where the the time needs to be spent to try to reduce the the churn. The other piece kind of is like reasonable valuations, and I'm shocked like how often people have just insane valuations. Like your company is doing 100k ARR, like you're not you're not getting a 10x valuation unless it's got you know. Thousand percent growth or something like that, and it wouldn't be stuck at 100k if it was doing that. So understanding like where you fit on that that curve, I think, is important. And there's there's a lot of information out there too. Like there's a great resource. Uh, FE International is is one of the online brokers. They've got a really nice uh, article out there that details all the different input metrics and you know kind of how they they are weighted. On evaluation. That that's just their perspective to an extent, right? So keep that in mind. But you know, it unless you know, like know what the market looks like. Right now it's kind of anywhere from three to five X, depending upon size, churn, how automated it is from you know how much time it takes from the, the owner's perspective and the team's perspective, how fast it's growing and whether that growth is accelerating, decelerating, or staying flat. And those different where you fall, fi- fall kind of in that range will let you know whether you're closer to the f- the five X or the three X. And there's always exceptions to those, but that at least gives you an idea of, of a good starting point um, and kind of remove some of the the emotion from it and put some formulas to it. Uh, and that makes it a little bit easier to be set up.
1: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I I do echo what you're saying about how I think a lot of entrepreneurs and not just in the software business, but other elsewhere as well. They always overvalue their company and think that it's worth uh, much, much more. Uh, I bet that can lead to some maybe tarnished relationships some hurtful relationships early in the process when you're first getting in touch if you're a little straight with them and let them know what you actually think it's worth. Um, Do you ever see founders getting a little upset thinking that their their company was worth quite a bit more than you actually evaluate it to be?
0: Yeah, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I Uh, bet. Yeah, it, it happens a lot. Like just kind of the nature of the beast, you know? Somebody may come pay that man. Like it, it's just not necessarily going to be me, right? And I, I'm just going to tell you what I've seen from my perspective, and you can take it or leave it. Like I'm, I'm not offended, and I, I hope you're not either. Like I, if I'm on your side of the table, I'm going to want to get as much money as possible. That's that's your job, right? My, yeah. my side is just trying to get the best deal structure to mitigate risk and and stay profitable. So and and make a return for my investors. So understanding that those kind of two sides of the table, like it's just it's just the math at the end of the day. is, is how I try to look at it.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So once you get into a relationship, once they're uh, you know you maybe get an LOI or whatever the next step is, how long should that due diligence process take? What 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 happens, and how long should they expect to go through that?
0: Yeah, well, you know what's pretty sweet about the SaaS business is everything is online now, and there's so many tools out there. Like, no traditional due diligence is you know a lot of times hiring an accountant and looking at all these financials, income statements, balance sheets, all that stuff, and looking at bank statements and trying to do all of this financial verification along with just business health and SaaS. That's super easy a lot of times. And I'll, I'll kind of walk you through a, a deal that we had earlier this year and ended up falling through right before close. But it was a SaaS company and you know they had ProfitWell set up and all that. It was so easy to go in and do all the analysis to verify the PL they had sent me and I could build my own very, very quickly. And, and you can move through that pretty quickly. So I typically try to shoot for for thirty days, just super aggressive. But forty five is probably a more realistic timeline. And it it just depends. Like honestly, a lot of times the the challenge at the end is you're all ready to go, and just the, the banking always holds things up, which is not I think unique to to SaaS. It's any company acquisition. Um, the legal side is all, and especially your lawyers involved, so always always yeah. rehashes everything you already discussed three times. But you know that's what it is. <laughs> So I I typically do like two weeks of analysis from a business standpoint, depending upon the company. I I really actually kind of like to run the company next alongside the founders or the the team members for about two weeks that, and I will say that some buyers are not cool with that and that's fine, but that's kind of a unique thing that I like to do. It really helps me learn a lot more about the business and, and get an idea of, you know, what maybe is missing from an SOP or I uncover some, some different risks as well. And that's, so it's always kind of a delicate thing to handle. Um, I will, I will definitely say, but I mean, I, I think it's an important piece for the business. Sometimes it's super straightforward and it just doesn't matter, but it just kind of, kind of depends.
1: I think that's interesting. I haven't heard that before, but you can certainly learn a lot by diving in and and being completely, um, you know, immersed within the company and the structure and the flow and the processes. I think that's pretty smart. I haven't heard that before. Do you think that's pretty unique among investors?
0: Yeah, I do you know, kind of the, a lot of the group that I work with, we all kind of, of approach it the same way. Uh, what what I have found is, you know, in general you get, uh, and this is kind of really all all asset class acquisitions, but you know, you get a, a spiel from the founder and the, you know, the team members on, hey, you know, it takes X amount of hours to, to run the business. And you've got to understand, I mean, there's always going to be a learning curve, right? Like you're not going to hit there 10 hours a week, your first week running it. But, mm-hmm. you know, you can get a gauge from running it of is this gonna stay at twenty hours for like six months, or is this gonna be something that starts at twenty and maybe within you know two months I'm back at at ten hours as well? There's a little bit kind of an art for that, and it's not it's not a perfect science by any stretch, but it lets me kind of gauge like what's the true workload, uh, which you know on my side like helps really inform the the modeling as well, you know like when I'm gonna have to hire employees to, to run it, or, or maybe I've got investors as well that are technically inclined in a specific space and they want to get involved in, in running the, the business op. It lets us kind of look at the deltas between those, those two and, and figure out you know, what, what it actually is going to look like from a cost perspective.
1: Super interesting. So as a founder it is gearing up for investment or acquisition, what are some of the common mistakes that you see some of these founders making that really impacts them?
0: Yeah, I think you know I talked a little bit earlier about not knowing the, the customer acquisition channels, which is not—I mean, it's not an always thing either. Like I, I don't want to come off like I'm just knocking people, but I mean, sometimes it's just not an easy thing to know. Um, and I, I think you've got to interview your your top customers and, and understand where that comes from. But I mean, where this gets back to is, is the customer relationship, and you know what I always have thought has been Amazon's biggest competitive advantage is their whole working backwards process from a customer is world class. And they're the they're the best at it in the world, I think. Um, and that's a big, big integral reason for why they are where they are. And, and you know how that translates to being a, a SaaS founder is verifying your product market fit. Like I see a lot of startups come up and they're like, well, you know, we've got these customers, but there's no revenue right now. I'm like, okay, well it's not super attractive because people aren't willing to pay for the product at the moment. And I think this is starting to catch on, which is, which I'm really excited for because it's just gonna mean better companies are being built. But you can verify product market fit in a ton of ways before you actually build anything. Like you can build a landing page and run some basic ads and see if you get click-throughs and signups. You can build, you know, an MVP with with no code yourself for pretty cheap. You can do a pre-sale at launch, right? And say, hey, this is what we're thinking we're going to build. Are you interested? And I, I'm surprised how successful that is a lot of times that people are willing to pay for something, even if they don't even know the founder, right? They're like, yeah, you know, this problem is a pain for me. Like it kind of sucks. I would love somebody to work on a solution for it. I'll throw you 50 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever wow. it is. Like I'll, I'll take a shot at that. And the beauty of that is on the other side, you get to leverage those people to then inform your features and your roadmap. So you're not flying as blind and you're going to have a much more successful product at launch, probably more uh, narrowly defined. But I think that that's actually a really good thing because you'll get a lot more traction uh, early on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's great. And I agree. I, I'm also surprised when I see some people doing these pre-launch sales and it's working and working yeah. successfully. So uh, I myself am maybe a little more of a researcher. Maybe I'm not quite an early adopter on some of those, but uh, it's crazy to see some of these working really well.
0: It's been pretty fun. Um, so I, I would definitely suggest that people look for the, the best that they can.
1: Awesome. So what's one tip you would give to a SaaS founder who's just starting out and how they can can get things ready for investment or acquisition?
0: Yeah, I, I think you should have an idea of what you want. Like, are you building this because you want to just build a nice lifestyle? You know, you make 100, 200K a year and you want to just, you know, coast on that, um, which I think is a, is a great thing, honestly. More people should push for that than just trying to pursue a bunch of venture capital. And, you know, understand when you might raise money. Like you're, you should be raising money to make your vision bigger, not possible. That's, oh, I that's love that. the main thing.
1: Yeah, I love that. That's a great quote. Well, that that makes a lot of sense. And Preston, this has been great. For everybody out there, again, we've been talking with Preston Tucker of PMT Ventures. Uh, really, really helpful stuff all around fundraising and investments and acquisition. So Preston, how shall our audience get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing?
0: Yeah, you can uh, catch me on Twitter. It's where I'm most active, Tucker, two underscores, P, or just search Preston Tucker. And then I'm, I'm on, if you guys are familiar with Nathan Locke, I'm on his Thursdays Shark Tank kind of for SAS dealer bus show on, on YouTube on Thursdays. Uh, I'm actually going to be on again tomorrow. I know this is probably won't air in time, but uh, you catch the replays as well. So,
1: yeah, those are a lot of fun. I've tuned into a few of those. Those are certainly interesting. Yeah, they're, a, job that,
0: so. yeah, they're a blast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Preston. This has been really educational, really fun.
0: Absolutely, Matt. Thanks for having me today.
1: For sure. And for everybody else, we will see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Sastry in the Making. Join us next episode for another look into how today's visionaries are creating the next generation of innovation.